Hello, and welcome to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. I'm Julia Baird, and we have Professor A.C. Grayling here to talk to us today. A great treat. And of course, the housekeeping, first of all, get your phones. We don't want you to turn them off anymore, just to put them on silent. If you're tweeting, hashtag FODI. We are going to have some questions at the end of the session. And remember that it's, we're, we're filming everything as well. And uh, there's four microphones that you can come to, but we will leave that to the end of the question, end of the session. AC Grayling says, to read is to fly. And he's right. He's a distinguished philosopher, and I think has dedicated his life, not just to the acquisition of knowledge, but to examining how it helps us live and asking the right questions about the way in which we live. He's also called the fifth horseman of atheism, which I think is a fantastic title. And one of my favourites of his books that he's written, and of course he's been prolific, and he's written and edited more than 30 books, is The Good Book, which is a secular Bible. He is the Master of New College of the Humanities and a Fellow of St Anne's College at Oxford. His other books, The Challenge of Things, Liberty in the Age of Terror, The God Argument to Set Prometheus Free, and I can highly recommend his new one. I lost some sleep reading that last night, some excellent essays. His dangerous idea is about asking to have a revolution in education and suggesting that the question that I have grappled with a lot, and I'm sure many, many of you have, which is what is education for? And he will suggest that this is entirely the wrong question to be asking, and I would ask you to welcome Professor A.C. Grayling. Thank you, Julia. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, indeed, so my, my theme is education. And of course, education is the vast subject. There are so many, many different things to say about it. Those of you who, in the audience who are educators will know that there are so many theories about how we should teach, um, about how people learn. There are so many different views about what the curriculum should contain. So many views, indeed, about who should be offered education, who should be educated. Um, at the moment, of course, what we do is we take uh, kids from about the age of five or six and we put them through a process that they emerge from uh, at the age of um, maybe 18 or maybe 21 or 22 if they've gone on to a higher education. Uh, and we hope that when they come out at the other end, they will be what we hope that an education will make people be. And the great question that we have to address is whether the answer that we give to the question what education is for, and I do, by the way, Julia, I think that is the right question, what is education for, that the answer that we give to that one is, in my view now, the wrong answer. And that's what I want to try and explain. And I want to say something about what I think the, the right answer might be. But it has always been the case, right the way through the history of our civilization, uh, and indeed of, of all civilizations really, that to equip people for a, a full part in the lives of our societies, um, we have to provide them with an opportunity to be equipped, to understand the nature of the world around them, to be able to manipulate the tools that are so essential in our world, of course, the tools of literacy and numeracy. And there have also been people, philosophers of education, educators themselves, who have thought that the future of the world, its peace, its health, very much depends upon education. And there can't be any question but that they're right. In our contemporary world, what really does matter uh, is that more girls should get an opportunity for education. It's a very surprising and dismaying statistic to realize that there are many parts of the world, and the Middle East is one of them, where literacy among women is only about 50%. And if you think of what that means, mothers who can't read, bringing up children, uh, who can't therefore participate in the society around them as effectively as they might do. Um, if you think of the impact of illiteracy and innumeracy, you see how serious it is. 
Many years ago, I was doing some work at the Human Rights Council in Geneva, and the UN had just published a report on the effect of education on women in Africa. And the report said that just a, just a degree of, of elementary education, the ability to read and write, add and subtract, utterly transformed the lives of many of these women. They had fewer children, the children were healthier, the women could look after their own money, they ceased automatically to be the possession of their fathers, passed on to become the possession of a, of a husband or husbands. And the transformative effect, therefore, of this enormously empowering thing, which is to have those basic skills of literacy and numeracy, was really astonishing. It gave me a, a desire, really, to be involved in some way in uh, enhancing the education of, of women in Africa. And so I wanted to um, uh, help to set up a school for girls. But I was advised by no less a person than Ayan Hersi Ali, who, uh, whose name you may very well know, that it would be wrong to have a school just for girls, that it had to be co-educational, because otherwise the boys and men in that uh, community would be hostile to the girls who were being privileged in that way. But she said to me, the, the key thing to ensure that girls get an education in Africa, absolutely fundamental thing, is that there must be a loo with a door. It's got to be a lavatory with a door, because if there isn't, then when the girls reach puberty, they can't go to school or their school is very badly interrupted um, because they can't look after their personal hygiene. And it's a little thing like that, off to left field, a surprising thing that one wouldn't normally think about when thinking about setting up a school that would make all the difference. So there are lots and lots and lots of different considerations that one has to adduce to think about education across the great range of questions that education involves. But the, the importance of education to society and to its future is, as I say, undeniable. After the First World War, three of the most significant philosophers of the 20th century in the uh, Western tradition anyway, uh, Bertrand Russell, Ludwig Wittgenstein and Karl Popper, all of them got involved in education. They all thought that in order to avoid war in the future, in order to try to heal the wounds that had been created by the First World War, the next generations of people really needed to be given a proper opportunity for an education. Bertrand Russell founded a school, Telegraph House School, which became rather notorious um, because of his uh, views about things. He, as you know, was a, an atheist and he believed in rationalism, wanted to bring children up to be rational thinkers. And the story is told that a bishop visited the school one day, rang the doorbell, and the door was opened by a naked child. And the bishop said, good God, and the child said, there isn't one. <laughs> it just shows you how successful Burton Russell was. Karl Popper was a, a teacher of science and uh, uh, the effect of being one uh, was greater on him than it was on his pupils because he came to understand something about uh, the nature of scientific reasoning and the scientific process, uh, which led, of course, to his contribution to the philosophy of science, a very considerable one. Ludwig Wittgenstein, as you might expect, was a somewhat less successful teacher. Um, he found that his patients wore very thin, very fast with his young charges, and he was hounded out of a mountain village in Austria uh, for having um, knocked a child unconscious. He gave him such a hard clip across the ear for not understanding something in the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus uh, that he decided to give up teaching uh, and therefore um, uh, became a full-time philosopher instead. But the important point of this anecdote is that all three of them really believed, even if in the end they individually and personally weren't all that successful in it, that education matters. That if we really care about the future of the world, then we have to care about education. So across that whole range of questions, how do you teach, how do people learn, what should the curriculum contain, what should a school be like, what should a university be like, what should the educational day be like, who should be educated, at what ages and why and how, should we examine or not, all those questions, all of them, matter tremendously. And as a result, of course, there is an extraordinary babel of voices, so many different theories about these things, that those of you who have uh, studied um, at a teacher's uh, training college or got educational qualifications at university will know that uh, this, this chaos, really, of, of views about things um, is 
one side of a story which is all too often matched by the chaos that comes out of government policy on what curriculums should be and how people should be taught and how schools should be funded. Now, here in Australia, I'm conscious of the fact that there was a controversy not too long ago about the teaching of history, of Australian history. And this just shows you that there is a, a point, a very tendentious, difficult and delicate point about what curricula should contain. So these questions are very important and burning questions. And to talk about them properly would take a very long time. So what I want to do instead is to focus on uh, a major philosophical question about education, uh, a question which is not altogether easy to answer unless you play intellectual pick-up sticks with it. Now, my references to that game where you hold a bunch of sticks and then you let them go. You've got to pick up each individual stick without moving the others. So in, in order to try to get a, a grip on what kind of answer should be given to the question, what is education for, one has to do that. One has got to be a little bit uh, nuanced about it. Most people nowadays, consciously or otherwise, and certainly in governments around the world, if asked the question, what is education for, would almost certainly pick one of the answers that has to be given as the dominating answer. And to put it at its crudest, at its frankest, the answer that you're likely to get is this. We have to educate people so that they can become successful contributors to the economic life of the country. They have to be able to go out there and get a job and be successful, perhaps even become entrepreneurs, but anyway, to be useful, successful employees. In short, they have to become good, useful foot soldiers in the economic war. And that is why it's important that people should be numerate, why they should be literate. It's important that they should be part of a, of a, a, a trained workforce, able to understand things like, for example, the information technology, able to um, master the techniques and technologies of central importance to the success of the economy. Now, this is something which is part of the overt curriculum of many educational systems, but much more importantly, it's part of what's sometimes called the hidden curriculum, the assumption that lies behind what's happening. You know, when a government thinks about how it's going to invest in education, uh, it thinks of it as an investment and it wants a return on that investment. It wants education uh, to be such that it's productive from the point of view of GDP. It wants to, that investment to uh, really boost the growth of the economy. And this answer to the question that education is for producing people who are going to be useful to the economy is, to me, not only uh, uh, the least important of the answers that you could give, but is too often understood in a way that makes it the wrong answer to the question. Because the much more important answer, the better answer to the question, what is education for, is and should be that it is for life. It is for people to have successful, achieving, flourishing, worthwhile, personal lives only part of which, of course, is going to have to relate to what they do in the way of careers or jobs. Of course, it's a wonderful thing if you love your job, if you do a job that you really enjoy, so that like the, the uh, uh, Chinese poet who once said, I leap from my bed and hasten swift as a thirsty cat to my work. Well, if you feel that way every morning when you get up, that's a wonderful thing to have a really wonderful job that makes you full of satisfaction and, and a, a sense of movement towards something really worthwhile. That's great. A lot of jobs aren't quite like that. And, uh, and therefore, um, we are reminded, if we are in such jobs anyway, that there is more to life than just work. Uh, and it's those other aspects of life, those other aspects of oneself as an individual, and in particular one's relations to other individuals and to the community around one, that should also be educated, that is to say, provided with an opportunity to be enriched and enlarged so that one's view of the possibilities for life, one's view about other people and one's view about the world should have very broad horizons, very fresh, clear uh, prospects before it so that life can be really, really worth living. And that's what an education should be for. And there are all sorts of things to say about that because although it's a very simple point, it's a, it's a very significant point in a way because a great deal follows from it. And one thing that immediately follows from it is that education is not just about the period between 5 and 21. 
education should be for life. We should all feel that we are perpetual students, that we are always learning, always open-mouthed and open-eyed in order to drink in as much of the world and as much of the debate that there is, the great conversation that humanity has with itself about the world so that one can be a, an intelligent auditor of that conversation and a contributor to it. And if an education can make people like that, if it can help them to have that enlarged and enriched view, and if it is something which continues to enlarge and enrich throughout life, then education will do the thing that it really ought to be doing, making us grow constantly, making us constantly alert. Now, how do you achieve that kind of education? Well, that, that's something which I very, very firmly believe is achieved not by focusing only on those aspects of what we call education, which actually aren't education, but which are something equally important but different, and that is training. Because if you think about what happens in a, in a school, part of, of the process is a process of training people in certain skills. I mean, in the skills of numeracy, for example. When I was at school, we learned our multiplication tables by rote. And in fact, that was a wonderful thing. We mastered them in a sing-song fashion very quickly and very early. It freed up a lot of brain capacity, therefore, for doing other things afterwards. Now, if I have to multiply, it just comes naturally. I don't have to get out a calculator or find that I've got too few fingers and toes to, to be able to do the sum. Orthography, spelling, knowing how to uh, correctly uh, use the uh, terms in our language, that's something else that one can be trained in. Being trained in the formulae and the equations in chemistry and in, and in mathematics, that's also a matter of being, of being drilled, of being shown how to do something, given a technique. And training is not quite the same thing as education. Think about the etymology of the word education. There's a very interesting false etymology that it has. Now, you were all reading Plato in the bath last night, so you will know that he had this view about uh, the, the, the fact that um, we simply cannot, from the very fragmentary and degenerate examples of things in the world around us, ever come to any general truths uh, about reality. And therefore, we must have known about reality before we were born. And what happens was, well, is that we have an immortal soul, and the immortal soul is in direct contact with the eternal and immutable truths of things. And when we are born, we forget it all. And so the process of uh, what we call education is, in fact, just a process of being reminded of a bit of what we knew beforehand. This, as you know, was called the doctrine of anamnesis, which means the doctrine of unforgetting, of remembering little bits of what we had known in a pre-existent state. And so if you look at the word education, you see that it has a, a Latin etymology, and it comes from a, or ex, meaning out of, a ducere, to mean to lead. We get our word duke, or dux, leader, from that. To lead out, or to bring out. So the idea contains in it the germs of this uh, ancient Platonic uh, notion that we are already equipped with all knowledge, and that we must bring out that knowledge by reminding people of it. And you will have uh, read the dialogue by Plato, the Menno, in which he demonstrates this with a slave boy who knows no geometry, and he gets the slave boy to construct a geometrical proof just by prompting him with questions. It happens, footnote, that they are rather leading questions, in fact, but at any rate, it was meant to be an empirical demonstration. Now, this idea of leading out has remained central to the idea of education. Not that we any longer believe, except when we are ourselves teenagers, uh, that we know everything, but that we, uh, we, we, we can have drawn out of us by the process of education our capacities, our talents, our abilities. These are things that can be fostered and, and coached. And this is a really important aspect of the process. We train people in the basic skills of numeracy and literacy. We, we drill people in a knowledge of those basic equations and dates and places and the capital cities and the Norman conquest. But then, on the basis of that training, we can begin to erect the structure of education which involves getting people to think and to be perceptive and to start to reach out towards that thing which is even more than knowledge, even greater than knowledge, and that is insight or understanding. Knowing what the knowledge is worth, knowing how to connect different bits of knowledge to other bits of knowledge, knowing how to apply knowledge, knowing which bits of knowledge tell us that there are yet more things to know. And that, that level, 
The level of insight and understanding is what emerges during the process of a schooling and which, of course, is the, the great objective of a higher education at university, which is to bring people to the point of really making sense of what it is they, they know and have learned. Now, in our contemporary world, this is a matter of the very, very, very first importance because now, at the touch of a button and at the speed of light, you can find almost any information that you want on the internet. So if you want data, if you want facts, if you want dates, if you want equations, you can get it just by pressing a few buttons. And therefore, the thing that, uh, that we, we need to use education for is not so much to download from the, the neck top of the teacher to the neck tops of the students in the classroom those dates and facts and equations. That was something that had to be done before information was so readily available. Now what we have to teach people to do is to be good evaluators of all that data, good critical uh, assessors of what they read and see on the internet. Because this marvellous thing, the internet, is also a dangerous thing. It's the biggest lavatory wall in history. Everybody can scribble their graffiti on it. Many, many aspects on the internet are false and misleading. I don't know whether you know this, but the Wikipedia pages, many of them are under attack, sometimes dozens of times a day by people who want to change or tweak or falsify information on them. It's said that the Wikipedia page on Israel, for example, is attacked several times a second, and uh, the information there has to be adjusted. So there's a huge amount of tendentiousness, and to be a good user of the internet is a very important thing, and you can only be a good user of it if you are good at evaluating, if you develop a good critical reflective nose for knowing how to make sense of what's being offered you in the way of data and of information. And if you wanted an illustration of this, my favourite story about how important it is to know how to handle the internet well uh, relates to the uh, French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy. I'm sure some of you have heard this story before. Bernard is, a, um, as I say, contemporary French philosopher, has flowing locks. Not necessary to have flowing locks to be a philosopher, but he has them. <laughs> He's very distinctive for his uh, dress uh, style. He wears a plunging décolletage. In fact, I learned just recently that he doesn't have any buttons on his shirt. So they're open down to his belly button. I asked him one day, I said, Bernard, why do you wear your shirt open to your belly button? And he answered, and I quote, because I'm hot. Anyway, <laughs> Bernard, Bernard recently published a book. And in this book, he quoted an, uh, an unknown French thinker of the 18th century called Botul, B-O-T-U-L, only to discover when the book had been printed and was on the shelves that there is no such person. It had been made up by some joker on the internet. And this is something that Bernard would have noticed if he had further noticed that Botul's theory is Botulism. Well, <laughs> Bernard was asked on television how on earth he could have quoted something from the internet without checking it up. And with great Gallic flair, he said, oh, you know, what he says is good, so I quote him. Well, uh, that, that, that might be one way out of the problem, but it's a very good illustration of the fact that you have to be very good at spotting what might not be uh, quite the right bit of information, quite the right source, or quite the right uh, validation for a piece of information that you get hold of when you look at the internet. And so that skill, the forensic critical skill of being really good at making an assessment of something and evaluating something, that is a matter of intellectual technique, uh, which is in a very, very important component of what it is to educate a mind, to make a mind prepared and equipped and alert and able not just to get information, to know how to get it, but how to use it and how to make sense of it. So that has to be a primary target of what we do in education today. Now, there is no question at all that uh, the STEM subjects, as they're called, science and technology and engineering and mathematics, that those subjects are of the first importance also. It's hugely important that people in our world should have competence with information technology and should be numerate. And our, our world, our economies, do need engineers, they do need scientists, physicists and IT specialists. There's no question about that either. And what I'm just about to say, therefore, doesn't in one uh, little iota affect the fact that we should encourage people to, to know about these things, to be literate scientifically. I mean, that doesn't involve having to be a scientist, but to be scientifically literate is to have an intelligent grasp of 
Those things that are happening in cosmology and in particle physics up at CERN in Geneva, in the biological sciences, which are having such a great impact on medicine, for example, in the neurosciences, which are telling us so much more about ourselves and our brains and how they function. One should have a, an intelligent ability to grasp these things, understand them, and um, be able to follow debates about them, and if necessary, when questions of science policy arise, to be informed voters about them. So. I'm not in one way impugning the importance of STEM subjects. But what has happened in our world, because of the answer given to the question, what is education for, is that we have devalued the humanities. We have made them seem less important because they appear to be uh, less of a direct contribution to the great economic battle, the process of increasing uh, growth and uh, the bottom line on GDP. And by the humanities, of course, I mean history and literature, philosophy, the languages, classics, um, those aspects of the social sciences, psychology and sociology and law and economics that bear on the same questions which are really central to the humanities. Because the central question of the humanities is, what sort of people should we be? How should we live? What should we value? What's important in life and in our societies? How can we build societies with social justice in them, where it's possible for individuals to forge for themselves lives that are really worth living, and where they can forge also that thing which is central to the very best kind of life, and that is good relationships. Now, why do I say this? Why are the humanities important? Well, let me just give you the... the quick uh, answer uh, on the three central humanities, literature and history and, and philosophy. Think, think, of, think of it this way. Imagine a society that doesn't care about these things at all. So the humanities are not taught in the schools or the universities. There are no books in the bookshops or libraries about them, no programs on television about them. What would that society be like? If it knew nothing at all about history, it would know nothing about how it came to be as it is now. It wouldn't know about the evolution of the institutions that it lives by. It would know nothing about the experience of our forebears in the human story and what they achieved and what they failed at and why, if indeed they did so. It's often been said that those who know no history have very little understanding of the present, and that's true. And also, of course, the future doesn't exist. We create it moment by moment. And the only resource that we have for trying to work out the best course into that future is by looking at our past experience. I say all this, by the way, uh, leaving aside the other great fact, which is that history is utterly fascinating. To know something about it, to read history, uh, to have an understanding of it is, is absorbing and fascinating. It's all the stories about, about human experience but we can learn an enormous amount from them. And so a society that didn't care about history, that was ignorant about it, would be in a very impoverished and shallow state. So that's why our educational systems should want people to be historically sensitive, historically literate, to have a sense of context. Now, I imagine that this society doesn't care about literature either, doesn't care about the stories we tell one another, about what it is to fall in love or to experience grief or to have great ambitions and to strive to realise them. If you think about it, literature is a very highly organised form of gossip and we all love gossip. We all want to know about what other people are doing and why and what they felt and what happens behind closed doors. And this is the marvellous thing about literature. However energetic you are yourself, you can only live your own life and have direct experience of the lives of those close to you. But literature provides open windows into many, many, many different kinds of lives and experiences. It enables us to see across the great panoply of, of human experience and human nature. It, if we are reflective and sensitive readers, can teach us to be so much more sympathetic and generous in our understanding of other people, can help us to be tolerant, can help us to get some insight into ways of life and experience that we might never ever ourselves encounter directly. So literature is an extraordinary resource. It's an extraordinary opportunity really to get into the minutiae and the details, into the, into the blood and sweat of, of human reality uh, and extending thereby our view of those things. So a society that didn't care about literature, about these stories, about the narratives that we're all so hungry for all the time, is a society which has blinded itself to an immense resource of possibility for understanding ourselves and our other people. 
And finally, we imagine this society doesn't care about philosophy. So it never asks itself questions about the nature of knowledge, of reason, of right reasoning, of the good, of lives worth living, of value. It never questions the assumptions on which it rests. And one of the great things about philosophy is that it asks us to challenge assumptions. It asks us to dig down and unearth the assumptions on the basis of which we act and, and believe. I'll give you an example of this. I'm, I, uh, I'm an Oxford uh, person myself. I was a student there and I taught there for many years. And you've all heard of Oxford. Some of you may have heard of that other place on the... Uh, <laughs> in the damp meadows of eastern England, which I think is still called Cambridge. Now, one thing that Oxford people notice about Cambridge is that Cambridge people think that what happens in Cambridge applies to the entire universe. And my <laughs> chief example of this is Isaac Newton. He was sitting in one of those damp meadows one day when an apple fell on his head. It made him look up at the sky and he saw the moon and he asked himself the question, why doesn't the moon fall to the earth? And thereby began a long curly tail, which eventuated in the inverse square law of gravitation which, like a good Cambridge man, he applied to the entire universe. And instead of just thinking that gravity, I mean, you know, there's a lot of gravity in Cambridge, but why did gravity just apply to Cambridge? He applied it to the entire universe. So now, you might want to ask him if you had the opportunity, say, Isaac, why did you generalise the law of gravity to the entire universe? What would he answer? Well, he would say, well, uh, um, it's because the universe is the same everywhere. He uses this very poetic turn of phrase, the universe is homogenous throughout its parts. So you say to him, but Isaac, why, why do you think that? Knowing as you know now, of course, because the other thing you were reading in the bath last night was quantum physics and cosmology. So you know that the laws of physics don't apply across the whole universe on the event horizon of a black hole or at any singularity like the Big Bang, the laws break down. So you know Newton is wrong. So you say to him, but why did you assume that? Why did you assume the universe is the same everywhere? But he would say, as he does say in the Principia, the universe is the same everywhere because it was created by God and God is an economical workman. <laughs> Meaning that God would just make the universe the same everywhere even though having eternity you might expect a bit of variety. You know. <laughs> well, there are three great assumptions, at least three great assumptions lying behind what Newton says. First, that there is a God. Secondly, that she created the universe. <laughs> and thirdly, that she's an economical work person. By the way, people do ask me while I say she, why I say she, I say it's just to keep you awake. Well, so there, there are three great assumptions. And the really significant thing about them, because of course they're independently debatable assumptions, but the really interesting point is that they are non-physical assumptions, non-scientific. They're theological assumptions, and yet they lie in the very foundation stones of classical Newtonian physics. And that's a surprise. And that surprise is repeated again and again and again when you look at the kinds of beliefs, the thoughts, the bases, the foundations of things that we think and do in our society. So to dig up those assumptions is of the first importance. And that's why philosophy matters. So this society we're imagining, which never does that, gives us the narrowness, the lack of depth, the lack of perspective that results from not knowing what the humanities offer us. And this is why, for lives that are good, for lives that are, I mean, good in the sense of fulfilling and worthwhile, not necessarily good in the narrow moralistic sense, but lives that are really good to live, one needs to have that horizon of view that the humanities offer. And it is no surprise to me at all that one of the great institutions for the study of STEM subjects, Imperial College at uh, London, has introduced for its students what they call the co-curriculum, which is a strand of humanities studies alongside their technical studies, in order to provide that widening of view. Now, many things that the humanities address are things that don't have easy or black and white answers. And, and sometimes, of course, they don't have answers at all. That's a characteristic sometimes of philosophical inquiry. But then you know what the French poet Paul Valéry said about this matter. He said, une difficulté est une lumière. A difficulty is a light. Mais une difficulté insurmontable est le soleil. An insurmountable difficulty is the sun. So when you tackle ideas that are hard, when you tackle questions that are difficult, when you look at the complexity and ambiguity of human experience that the humanities address, you learn so much about others and about 
oneself and about the world around us. And that is what the humanities offer. So the answer to the question, what is education for, has to be, must be, it is for life, it is for living. It is to provide us with an opportunity to think and to see, to become critical and reflective, to have that broader vision which enables us to imagine more and to see into other lives, to be more tolerant and embracing, to be more generous in our understanding of things, but also ourselves to live with the kind of uh, imaginative courage that a human life should be premised on. Now, I love to, to tell this, and I close on this little anecdote now, and I'm, I'm sure you, you're all very familiar with this, but um, when you read your Herodotus, uh, probably, this being a Sydney audience, in the original Greek, you will remember <laughs> that uh, he tells the story of Solon, the great lawgiver of Athens, who visited King Croesus of Lydia, the richest man by far, the richest person by far of ancient times, who loved to have his visitors taken to the treasury, there to see the great uh, panoply of wealth that he had. And then he would ask his visitors, who in your opinion is the happiest person in the world? And the visitors would say, well you, because you're so rich and you're a king. But Solon said, ah, oh, I knew somebody back in the suburbs in Athens there. Croesus was a bit cross. What? You choose a commoner over me? And Solon said, yes, because I don't know whether you're happy. By the way, in those old days, happiness meant something different from today. Happiness in those days meant something really, you know, active, well-doing and well-being, what Aristotle called eudaimonia. Uh, nowadays, of course, if we put enough Prozac in the public water supply, we'll... <laughs> so we have, we have a different conception of happiness. So that's what Solon meant. So I don't know whether you're happy, but I do know you should think about it. You should educate yourself into a, into a consciousness of how important it is to think about it. And you know why? because of the brevity of life. That a human life is less than a thousand months long. 300 of them were asleep. Another 300 months were in the supermarket or waiting for a bus. So you have 300 months to live with all the vividness and passion that a human life should be full of. Now, that sounds rather dispiriting, especially when you start, start doing a bit of mental arithmetic and thinking, heck, I've used a few of those months up already. Uh, but, but here's the thing. If you are a reflective, attentive consumer of the riches that the humanities offer us. If you've had the opportunity to read literature, to know something of history, to think and discuss and debate philosophically, then you turn those 300 months into 3,000 months, into 300 years. Because time is not time, it's life, it's experience. And the more richly you experience and the more richly you live, the longer you live, the fuller your life is. It's so easy to prove this. But I can say this to audiences in England, it's a little more difficult for audiences in Sydney, but if you go to Paris for the weekend, while you're there, it feels as if you're there forever. It's wonderful. When you get home again afterwards, it feels as if it's gone like a flash. What does this tell you? It tells you that time is very, very elastic around experience. And so if your life is full of rich experience, it is hugely expanded in time. And where do you get that rich experience from? You get it from knowing stuff, from insights, from having read and thought and listened and heard and discussed. That's what makes you uh, live all those centuries when you're living your 300 months. And by the way, guys, 300 months is 25 years. It's not too bad. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. That was so wonderful. Can you just say again in French so I can just learn how to say it and drop it into conversation myself? The insurmountable difficulty is yeah. the sun. Uh, an insurmountable difficulty is the sun, yes, because it's so illuminating. It throws so much light on the whole area around that problem. So even if you don't come know, up with an answer. Can you say it for me again in French? In French. <laughs> so he said, une difficulté et une lumière. That's so good. Okay. Um, <laughs> while we're preparing for questions, and um, we will have uh, the questions, I'll just kick off um, quickly. So much to think about there. I have been reading your book called, with the very narrow title, The Challenge of Things. And in it, you talk about teaching and you say, in short, you know, a good teacher inspires. What is it that's the most important characteristics, do you think, of a good teacher? Well, I think that's it, actually. It's the, 
making people want to learn. So if, if, you, can, if you can make your, your students, your pupils, hungry to know more, they really want to, to get that, they, they want to take it further, then, then that, and that's the inspirational bit, that's the thing that uh, is, in the end, the great outcome of it. Because right. as I often say to people, and I really, really believe this, I'm, I think teachers are among the most important people on the planet. Because they can make, they can make, they can create wonderful lives, mm. really create wonderful possibilities and lives for people if they can switch them on. Mm. And you can see this if you think of a bad teacher, somebody who, who turns somebody off a subject which they might have really contributed to or they might have you know, got so much out of if they'd enjoyed it. And that's a tragedy to lose that kind of possibility. Mm. But a, a good teacher, and you know, one of the tragedies of our world now is this, that uh, Teachers were always, until relatively recently anyway, um, you know, part of the sort of natural aristocracy of, of our world. You think about an English village in the 19th century, the vicar and the doctor and the teacher would be the, the top people in the village, respected and, and admired and really necessary to the life of the community. Now, alas, that we have a world where everything is measured by how much you earn, uh, the teaching profession, like the nursing profession, like so many other of the really, really important uh, professions, uh, are not considered uh, in the way that uh, top football players or CEOs of companies or something are considered. They are thought of as, as uh, you know, the kinds of jobs that are desirable because they have a lot of money attached to them. And the idea of a vocation, of doing something which is intrinsically valuable, Mm. It's really, you know, so instinct with value, as teaching is, um, now is, is less well regarded than it was. And that's a tragedy. I could not agree more. Okay. So we'll open it up for questions. We have one, two, three, and four. And I'll start with number three. Hi, I'm studying to be a teacher and uh, I don't care about the money, it's a calling for me. But one thing I have noticed is a lot of the students studying alongside me uh, have come straight from school into university and the, the attitude is that it's about marks and it's about passing your subject and there's no sense that we're doing something that's, in, that's incredibly important uh, and that we owe it to our students and we'll be using this information. I was wondering if you had any comments on the model that you just go straight from school to university to back to school to be a teacher and whether there is a deficiency in that model because it's something I'm wondering about. Well, there are two separate points in, in what you say. I mean, I do think that there are people who, having had such a good experience as pupils in education, might be so turned on to the whole idea of education and of wanting to give back that they should go straight from school into, into being teachers. I mean, I take that the, the burden of your point, which is that perhaps having some experience outside uh, and being able to bring more into the classroom uh, when you get there eventually could be a good thing too. But it does depend on individuals. So I think it would be um, that the answer is for some great to go straight from one back into education. For others, maybe uh, a few gap years doing something else, yes. But tucked away in your question was this, this other thought that um, teaching for exams, teaching to a curriculum, you know, if I had my way, I would abolish exams altogether. Because I, I think that... I think that amount of time wasted getting people ready for exams, you know, which could be used to, to educate and to encourage and for people to read and think, uh, well, I mean, probably in the tens of thousands of years of education are wasted doing that. Uh, um, here, I think you're a bit better off than we are in the UK, but in the UK, uh, in England and Wales anyway, kids do GCSE at 16, AS levels at 17, A-levels a at 18, first-year exams at 19 years. For five or six years, they're doing nothing but preparing for exams, and that is not education. Thank you. Okay. Number four, yeah. Um, students in the public education system aren't exposed to Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection until year eight, yet they are exposed to religious explanations to the origin of man since kindergarten. I was just wondering if you could reflect on that and... <laughs> <laughs> Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> 
I mean, if, if, uh, if, we were, if we had concentrated on the title of my talk, Bad Education, one of the things I would have to say is that uh, religious education, and especially the asymmetry in the, in the case that you've just eloquently described, this is a very, very important point. Now, I've said uh, in, in other contexts that we should stop religious education. Of course, it's important that uh, at school and university people should know about the uh, religious traditions in our world. They have, after all, been um, a little bit too influential in history, so we need to know about them. But they should be put into the context of the history of ideas in general. So to start from what we understand of the very earliest views of our universe, the development of the mythologies, all the different, many, many different religious traditions there are, the philosophical traditions, then the rise of science and our better understanding of the world, and this would put it into into context. But I agree with you. I mean, there is a very, very significant skewing of the point that if you're taught at the age of five about Adam and Eve and you only get to, um, uh, to Charles um, uh, in year eight, that is a bad thing. <laughs> All right, and we've, we've only got seven minutes left now, so if we just keep the um, questions short, well, hopefully we can fit in a couple more. Uh, Professor Grading, thank you very much for your speech. And, and sort of bearing on that previous uh, question, I'm actually associated with the Ethics Centre, which co-curates this event. One of the major achievements of the Ethics Centre is to create ethics classes mm -hmm. in the New South Wales primary schools from K to 6, and I think it's the only place now on the planet that actually <clears throat> enables that to happen. So feel free to react to that. When you, and your point about giving people life skills, we believe that's a pretty critical subject that kids now get in New South Wales <coughs> from K through to six, or they have at least has access to it. My question's slightly different. You've talked a lot about the content of education. I have a question about the process, and in particular, intensive cognitive training. You may mm -hmm. have heard of techniques like the Arrowsmith technique, mm -hmm. and people who focus not so much on content, but just training the brain picking up on the ideas of brain plasticity and just improving the engine of thinking as part of the education system. Yes, thank you. Um, and by the way, I'm a tremendous admirer of the, uh, of the Ethical Centre and what it does in New South Wales. I think that's completely wonderful. And by the way, there's an important point associated with that, which is that uh, very often people conflate or confuse the idea of ethics and morality. Now, of course, um, moral outlooks, moral views uh, can be uh, a part of ethics, Although you notice that the, the great ethical uh, debate in our civilization is one about the nature of the good and of what really does matter, and it's an attempt to answer the Socratic question of what sort of people we should be, whereas the moral pendulum goes backwards and forwards, and some periods of history are more puritanical, and some are more libertine. In fact, you look across the landscape of the last 400 years, and you see how far the pendulum swings in both directions. Um, you can see from the hairstyle that I was around in the 60s when the pendulum was in about the right place now it's uh, it's heading towards a much more puritanical view of things which which worries me uh, so it's not about morals but it is about reflection on life and how to live it and what sort of person to be and how we should relate to others and i hugely admire what what's happening here in new south wales that you guys are doing so i'm, I'm all for that on the, on the business about cognitive training well in, in fact in what I was saying uh, in my talk there about critical thinking and the ability to reflect, having a good nose for noticing something, being very observant and attentive, being alert. I mean, that, that's one thing. There's one way of putting this. And I think about this, uh, you know, m about my students at my college. That my great ambition for them is to have turned all the lights on for them. I sometimes put it by saying, what I really want to do is to pimp their ride, you know. So when they come out at the <laughs> other end, they, they're, they're so switched on that they notice things and they're, and they're very, very good at scrutinising them and challenging them with good questions. And that ability to be critically reflective in our world today is more important than it ever has been. Okay. <laughs> All right, and the last one, number two, thanks. Uh, thank you, Pro Professor Grayling, for your presentation. Um, you touched a little bit on classical languages and the classics. Um, so I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on their place in the curriculum. Um, I think they're included as a little bit underemphasized, as you said, as a part of the humanities. And if you could reflect on perhaps where they should be re-emphasized in the curriculums. 
Well, do you know, uh, up until relatively recently, uh, well, let's say uh, um, 75 or 80 years ago, um, people who were educated largely in the classics at the ancient universities in England, at Oxford and Cambridge, were sent out to run an empire, you know, Burma and India and what have you. And uh, you might think to yourself, well, how the heck did that work? I mean, how, how can, you know, a bit of Latin and Greek um, help you to do that? Well, when you look into a classics curriculum, see what you're reading. You're reading history, you're reading philosophy, you're reading literature, you're reading about great generals, about statesmen, about the history of the Roman Empire. A study in the classics is an almost complete study of almost everything that you need to know to go out there and run an empire. And it is, it is so rich and full and so, so much insight and so much of what we are today stems from that. I mean, you know, occasionally people talk about Western civilization being a Christian civilization. Well, actually, when Christianity became the dominant outlook of, of uh, Europe in about the fourth century, that was nearly a thousand years after Socrates. And for most of, of what matters to us in our intellectual life and our institutions and our thinking has come to us from classical and Hellenic and, and Roman antiquity. And a real knowledge of those things would so deepen our view of ourselves today that, in my humble opinion, the teaching of Latin and ancient Greek should be compulsory to the age of 55. <laughs> uh, if we're extremely quick, number three, we can fit one in. Going on the first question, what age should we start teaching children about all religions so that when they're in their very early years, they can understand that there are other religions and other beliefs. Yes, I'm very much uh, with you on that one. And as I said a moment ago about teaching the history of ideas in general, of which religions would be one strand and would be put into the context of the overall history of ideas. Uh, and that should be something that comes a bit later when um, the uh, students are, are better equipped with a more general knowledge of history and geography and also able to appreciate some of the um, varieties and nuances there are in competing ways of thinking about the world. So it, it really is something for the more mature mind, but it's of the first importance that these different traditions of thought should be in the context of other traditions of thought. What we tend to do uh, in our schools is we fill it out one strand in the history of ideas, that's the history of religion or, or re religious studies, and we thereby privilege them and make them seem to our students to be more important than the others, and they most certainly aren't. Anthony, it's been a, a great pleasure and an honour to have you here today. You know, you've been to Sydney before and you know us very well. We do read Herodotus in the original Greek, most of us. We do read Plato in the bath. And if we finish, now of course we have the challenge of things to read in the bath because with that promise of pimping our rides, how can we resist? Professor Grayling will be signing books uh, in the foyer outside. So can we now just thank him for speaking to us today? Thank you very much. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much.